Good morning. Really looking forward to spending some time together this morning and uh, having the opportunity to open the Bible together as we continue to step by step go through the book of Romans. And uh, if you've been with us the whole time since uh, the beginning of January, Romans 1.1, have been following along uh, either here or online. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, Glad that you're a part of it as well. If it's your first time here this morning and thinking, oh man, Romans 4, we're already like halfway, not halfway through, but already well underway, fear not. Uh, Never be intimidated by the Word of God. Always a message for you in it, and we're glad you're here today to to join us as well. Uh, Our theme uh, throughout this section, this little bit of a section that we've been looking at, uh, is this. That God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. An awesome proclamation uh, that we can stand secure in. Makes me think, I've been thinking this week, what comes to your mind when I say, what do you think of when I say empty promises? I was careful to say, what do you think of and not who do you think of? (laughs) But what comes to mind when I say empty promises? Maybe you begin to hear all these claims that can be made. If you you watch TV for longer than like three minutes uh, and you see a round of commercials, you'll hear all sorts of claims uh, that could be empty promises, making fantastic boasts that this will change your life. Uh, But does it really have any potential to do just that, to follow through? Not likely. Uh, Within the last 10 years, there's been uh, a certain mouthwash company that got into trouble for making the bold proclamation uh, that using their product would be better than flossing for the prevention of plaque buildup and cavities, all those great things, and it'll give you fresh breath too. Uh, That might be true, but the other part certainly wasn't. Uh, There are fruit juice companies and food companies get into trouble with this a lot, making claims that this is the greatest thing for you to put inside your body. There are no preservatives. This is 100% juice. And it was proven to be completely false. My favorite, though, is a shoe company that said if you wear their shoes, every step that you take will burn more calories and firm your thighs. Wow. Now that is a promise, right? Uh, I'm surprised that the... Yeah, everyone doesn't have those shoes, right? Because, I mean, don't we all want firmer thighs? That wasn't in my notes. (laughs) I'm going to put one... (laughs) Sidetrack myself. Thanks a lot. One more claim uh, out there as we look at the book of Romans, as we look at chapter 4, and one more claim that I want to look at and say, what do we do with this today? And it's this, that faith alone has always been the means by which humanity receives God's gracious gift of righteousness. Is that true, or is that just another empty promise? Put that out there for you this morning to say it absolutely is true, and here's why. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're going to read 13 through 25. It says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace. 
to guarantee it to all, to the, the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. <clears throat> awesome passage here this morning. And we're going to pull out several things from it as we look at it and dive in a little deeper. The first thing that I want to highlight and bring forward is that it gives us an image of God, a clear picture, an accurate picture of who God is, and that is God is a God of promise. <clears throat> Verse 13 starts right away with this. It says, for the promise to Abraham. What was this promise? We rewind to the Old Testament. If you remember back, and we, we looked at this a little deeper last year in the Bible Initiative, but you'll find this promise in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where God is interacting with Abraham and gives him this promise that he seals with a covenant, that he would give him a son, and that he would make him a great nation. He would give him this land and all of his descendants that would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky would inherit this. Abraham believed this from God, believed this promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It goes on to say that this promise did not come through the law, meaning Abraham <clears throat> didn't believe this promise and it, his righteousness wasn't credited to him for all of the good works he did or all of the ways that, that he step-by-step step went through some, some process or jumped through many hoops. No, it says it was credited to him righteous by faith. Simply, he believed that God is who he says he is. He believed 100% that God will do what he said he would do. And that is where his righteousness came from. <clears throat> we know that Abe's right... Abra <laughs> Abe's... Abraham's, I actually wrote Abe's in my notes, just for brevity's sake. Abraham's righteousness came through faith, and it was not through the law, and this is why. If our righteousness depended on the law, we see two things. First, it is absolutely impossible. We cannot live up to the law. Uh, the law that is, is given in the Old Testament, uh, if we were to try and live according to that, 100% perfectly, it's not going to happen. We cannot do it. Any perfect people here this morning? Look at all the hands raised. None. Any perfect people this morning even, since the time you, you woke up? No, we cannot live according to the law. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. 
says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Using the comparisons of the, the, the comparison of the scribes and the Pharisees, who were known for just being crazy dogmatic and living by the law to, to, to their faults. It became a, a source of pride. But saying that there is no other higher standard of people that were so committed to the law and they couldn't do it, your righteousness has to extend even far beyond that. It is impossible. We cannot do it. In Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> Jesus interacting with some other people who ask him the question, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Does it depend on the law? It says, love the, what does the law say? They say, love the Lord your God, and it goes back to the Shema in the, the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. So the standard of the law, if you can keep it, then you will live. But the law, living by the law, it's absolutely impossible. Why? Because the law brings wrath. None of us are perfect, and if we break a law, we suffer the consequences of the law. It's just the way the law works. And so what hope is there for us? Right? I think we get a little bit of a glimpse there, right? Here at the, the end of verse 14, it says, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Does that give us a little bit of an out or a waiver that, well, okay, that's the answer. I just need to ah, la, 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 close my ears and pretend I don't see the law and it doesn't exist and then I won't do anything wrong. It's actually the, the opposite is true. Uh, that we see that even if we claim ignorance, we are still subject to the law and its consequences. Sin and death take their toll, whether we're aware, we are aware of it or not. I leave church here this afternoon and I drive home and I buzz down 291 and I say, you know, now seems like the good time, uh, as good a time as any, to see how fast my car can go. You know, Toyota Camry, it's going <laughs> to hot rod city. I haven't seen a speed limit sign in a while, so I'm sure it's fine. When I get pulled over, because I will, I say to the officer, sir, I, I haven't seen a speed limit. That must see speed limit sign. That must mean there isn't one. What's he going to say? He's going to say, well, you're right, sir. Have a great afternoon. On your way. Not quite. Not quite. I'm going to have a ticket and a nice hefty fine because I broke the law. I can't use the excuse, well, I didn't know or I didn't see it. Uh, it doesn't work. As we become increasingly aware of our law, <clears throat> of, of the law, and our own inability to keep it, can build within us a sense of frustration, emptiness, hopelessness, worthlessness, and all of those feelings can overwhelm and feel like it possesses us. We feel abandoned and lost. But this morning, that's not bad news. We have that feeling and we have that sense of awareness that's actually good because then it shows us and it tells us and it points to the fact right here in this passage that the promise is secure. That the promise that God, <clears throat> that faith alone has always been our means, has been the means by which humanity receives God's gracious gift of righteousness is 100% true. 
and we can stand upon it. So we see that God is a God of promise. And next thing is we see that, uh, that God is, God's promise is 100% secure and, and true. We see a little bit, this, this picture starts to clarify in verse 16. It says, that is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all, right? This image of heirs comes into play here, that we are heirs, that we are connected to this passage, that the the hope of faith and the, the, the security that we have in there is available to us as well. Not just a few, not just someone else, but to us. Tim gave a great illustration last week of grace when he pretended he needed a drink of water and someone ran it forward and he gave them a donut. But then he also gave someone else a donut and said, they didn't do anything, so this is grace. They get a donut. I'd love to tell you that I'm going to take this illustration one step further to illustrate heirs to say that it's available to all. And underneath your chair, you will find taped one glazed donut. And no one flinches to look because I am giving you an empty promise, all right? But the point is, it's available to all. I'd love to be able to do that and say that and have a thousand glazed donuts this morning and actually stick them under your your chairs. Um, But this picture of heirs, this picture of we are all connected and it is available to all is exactly that. It is available for you. It is available for, for every single one of us here. How? How is that possible? Right? How do I know that, okay, Kurt, this is just words that you're giving me this morning and words that you're saying, but how do I know that that is true and secure? If you have a pen or a highlighter this morning, I encourage you to mark up your Bible and underline highlight verse 17, because here is where we stand. Verse 17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Right there is an amazing and accurate and 100% true picture of God. Who is God? Who do we place our faith in? Who did Abraham have his faith in? God, the one who gives life to the dead, breathes life into dead things, and calls things into existence that do not exist. You know of anything else that can do that? We can create some pretty neato, swift things with our talents and abilities, but has any of you breathed life into a dead thing or called something into existence that previously did not exist? None of us. No one. There isn't anyone in all of the world, in all of existence, that has ever lived. There isn't anything that has been created that we could put our hope and our faith in that can make that kind of claim. And yet this is the accurate picture of who our God is. Breathes life into the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Paul continues on and gives us uh, a further, uh, a more detailed picture 
uh, of something that we can use or someone we can use an example uh, of faith and, and goes into Abraham a little further with this promise uh, that he received and how he responded to that. And we can look at Abraham as our example for faith. What does faith look like lived out? We see that here. First, faith is rooted in the knowledge of its object. The object of our faith is what is of utmost importance and matters most. I grew up in western New York, about, 30 minute, about a 30-minute drive from Niagara Falls. And so I've always loved this illustration. I've heard it before. Maybe you have as well. But uh, I've always loved it because when I heard it the first time, I could just vividly picture exactly where this was and, and what it must have looked like. Uh, and, uh, you know, just it came alive to me. In the mid-1800s, 1850s, 1860s, uh, there was a French daredevil who traveled to western New York, took up residence in Niagara Falls, and strung a tightrope across the gorge of the Niagara River and began to traverse and and build up an audience, traverse back and forth across this tightrope, wowing the crowds and wowing the people that came to, to watch this spectacle. His name was the Great Blondine, the great Blondine was known all over the place and far and wide for, uh, you know, traveling 200 feet above the river uh, on this two-inch wide rope uh, back and forth. And every time that he did it, he would try to make it a little more crazy and a little more spectacular so that even in the mid-1800s, people wouldn't get bored with what is spectacular, right? And so he uh, did it walking backwards, He walked across the tightrope with the sack over his head to be blindfolded. He did it carrying a table and chair on his back and then halfway across the rope, set up the table, balanced it and set up the chair and balanced it so he was like sitting there having a cup of tea. One of the most spectacular, and I don't know if this is true just because I can't even get my mind around it, is that he put a small stove on his back, walked out to the middle of the rope, and cooked an omelet on a tightrope. I don't know. You with me? You guys seem to be buying it. (laughs) I don't know about that one. But the claim is is there and, and supposedly true. The point of the illustration is part of his traversing back and forth is he would push a wheelbarrow back and forth. And pushing a wheelbarrow to one side, the crowd would be there just amazed that, wow, he was able to do this, and fantastic, that's great. And he would say to the crowd, do you believe that I could push this wheelbarrow back and forth with a person inside this wheelbarrow? And of course, they all said, absolutely, yes, we believe that you could do it. And then the rubber hits the road phrase, and he says, okay, who's first? Who will be my first passenger in the wheelbarrow across? And not many hands went up. I'm not sure if anyone ever did actually physically get in the wheelbarrow, but he did carry his manager on his back, back and forth, like piggyback style. The illustration is, you know, okay, great. Yeah, we need to have faith to to get into that wheelbarrow, but it's still a faulty illustration, In his life, the great Blondine traveled back and forth across that tightrope 300 times. So we have that to say, well, okay, he's proven that he could do it 300 times. But now it's turn 301. Would you get in the wheelbarrow? 
Anybody? Not a chance in the world am I getting in that wheelbarrow. No way. It's not happening. Why? Because I know that Blondine, he may have done it 300 times, is still a man. All right? Is still very much capable of of one little misstep and slipping off the rope, and then it's adios, right? And then it's a, a long way down with a sudden stop in the water and probably will not turn out so well. I'm not willing to take that chance. I can't do that. Faith is rooted in the knowledge of its object. Abraham's faith was rooted in the Almighty God, who in verse 17 says, He is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. That is a secure place to put our faith. There is nothing more secure than that. Abe knew and was, I said it again, Abraham, me and Abe, you know, like this, buddies. Abraham was sure of those two things, absolutely rock solid secure in the fact that, that this is who God was and I can put my faith in him. I'm challenged by that thought and must ask myself the question and I ask it to you as well. Is Abraham's view of God consistent with my own? What is my view of God? The second model or the second example of faith that we can learn from Abraham is this, is that faith triumphs over the difficulties it fully understands. Abraham was fully engaged with his faith. There were a lot of reasons that Abraham could have used to say, no, these are obstacles to my faith and I just can't, I can't believe that what you're telling me, God, that I'm going to be a father and that I'm going to have descendants that are just innumerable. I can't really believe that that's true. And the obstacles were were many. First and foremost, uh, God, I'm 75 years old when you're telling me this. And Abraham says, you know, medical technology, you know, tells me in my day and age that I look around, I don't see any other 75-year-old first-time fathers. I don't see that happening. He, he could have said that. Yet instead, Abraham believed. He simply believed God that this is true. We have obstacles to our faith. There are two big ones that, that can come up against us when we, when we hear something or when we consider, God is God really the one who breathes life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist? The first is we can get sidetracked with our hopeless circumstances or what we think are our hopeless circumstances. We think, oh, this problem is just way too big. This situation is just too heavy for me. I mean, Abraham could have said, I'm 75 years old. There's no getting around that. This isn't happening. We can say, well, I've been struggling with with this scenario or God, this problem is just way outside of what I can handle, and we get stuck and paralyzed, and we do not move. The second thing is almost the opposite extreme, the second obstacle, and that is we can get sidetracked and paralyzed by the thought of the staggering possibilities. Abraham could have thought to himself, having a son? What? This is too good to be true. This is amazing, but no way. No, 
I've always heard that if it's too good to be true, it probably is, and so I'm not going to bite. I'm not going to you know, follow up on this or believe it. Abraham wrestled to the ground the thought, uh, the obstacles of, of hopeless circumstances and, and staggering possibilities, and again said, no, I may be old, and my body might feel dead, but God is the one who breathes life to the dead. He may have said, no way, uh, you know, you're going to give me a son? This is just like too good to be true. There's just no way this can happen. But he said, no, I believe God is who he says he is because he is the one who calls things into existence that do not exist. And his faith was rooted there. Abraham engaged his obstacles. His faith was lived out in action. Verse 18 says, he believed hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered, and I love some other translations say and describe this and and account this saying, he did not weaken in faith when he faced the fact. He faced the fact or when he considered that his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Abraham was able to grapple with the reality of his biological clock, that his promise, because his promise was from God, who gives life to the dead. Abraham's inadequacy became the arena where God's power is shown instead of a place where he would sink into despair and say, woe is me. This just isn't going to happen. It's over. No chance, no how. It says he gives glory to God by submitting to the process. There is power in our weakness. Paul knows this very well. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes of himself, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Great example from Abraham. The third model of our faith, or of Abraham's faith that we can put into practice, is that faith is consistent in its progress. And what I mean by that is, how are you at what we perceive to be time and delay? How patient are we? When we think we are following what God is leading us into and it just seems like, man, there's nothing but time and delay, how do we do with that? Again, I said the promise came to Abraham when he was 75 years old. And here in our passage in Romans, it talks about Abraham being 100 years old. He was 100 years old by the time Isaac was born. So that means for 25 years, a quarter of a century, he hoped against hope. He did not waver and said, God, I believe you are the one who said this and this will happen. For 25 years, his faith was consistent in the process. I'm good for maybe 25 minutes. 
I'll be honest. 25 years? Wow. That is truly being sure of uh, who he uh, had his relationship in, and that, is, and that is God. It says he did not waver. He did not doubt. But is that true? In respect to Abraham's unwavering faith, which again was credited to him as righteousness, a study of Abraham does re- reveal some, some moments to consider. And so do we have some inconsistencies here in, in Scripture? Again, we're an impatient people. I'm no different. I'm pretty sure I could find some allies out there that are impatient as well, that would admit to that. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, we find that Abraham, in an attempt to protect his own life, who may have thought that I really, whoa, God's promise is in jeopardy here and I need to do something about it. And so in an attempt to protect his own life, twice, Abraham pawns his wife off as his sister. In Genesis 16, Sarah herself, thinking that, man, this is taking forever, she could have thought. Wonder what's going on. We need to do something about this here. Thinking that she could provide an heir a different way, Sarah offers her own servant, Hagar, to Abraham to produce a son. And Abraham goes along with it. How do we connect the dots here that it says that Abraham did not waver and yet these facts of what also happened? I think we see that again, we can relate to the situation that there is a temptation in what we perceive to be time and delay that I begin to see the promises of God not as a privilege, but as an obligation, something that I must achieve. Victor Hamilton is an Old Testament scholar, Bible scholar, and he has written a a book about the Pentateuch and, and handles the situation this way and it's a great thought to consider. He says, instead of saying, we're going to have a baby, they say, we've got to have a baby. And whenever one sees the fruit of God's promises as something to be achieved rather than received, all sorts of options present themselves. Great thought. What options have presented themselves to me to say, I can ensure God's promise this way? Or there's something that, certainly there's something that I must do to help God's movement along. But the question is, did Abraham waver? And the answer is no. And here's why. The Greek word here is diakrino. Greek. I feel smarter. Joe helped me with that this week. Thanks, Joe. Shout out to Joe Stewart. But the word there for waver, diacrino, is to separate, to sever, to make distinction, to be double-minded. It's to to literally say, it would be like saying, there's no way this is going to happen. Mm -mm, I just don't believe it anymore, and that's why I am doing these things. No, Abraham always believed that this would happen. But there were moments when he behaved as if he needed to help this along to ensure it. I'm challenged by two things uh, in that. The first is this, that when I live with a faith that's placed in myself or anything other than God, I create an idol. And thinking that I know best, that even in small ways it's up to me just to help God along, I will begin to make sacrifices to that idol. 
And in my attempt to ensure and secure God's plan, I will sacrifice even what's most precious to me. The second is this. I'm challenged and encouraged by this, and you should be as well. And that God's promise is an absolute. When God makes a promise, it is an absolute. Despite Abraham's behavior, God again is shown to be a God of promise. The most famous passages in the New Testament, for sure, in all of the Bible about faith, is uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's a list of name after name of, of those whose faith were credited as, as righteousness and shown to be, to be righteous. Just an awesome chapter. You could look at it as like, these are all the really famous people of the Bible. These are the ones that they make veggie tales about uh, right here. <laughs> It's worth noting that nearly all individuals assembled in these most famous examples of faith have somewhere in their life a fatal flaw, and some more than one. On one hand, we know, we can see that those who adamantly reject God's will for their life find that their decision is honored. If I cross my arms and say, harumph, no way, no how, I am not going to believe this and not going to submit to God's plan or to, to God's will, no matter, you know, even especially when it's, when it's taking forever, we'll find that that decision is honored. However, but those who at least stumble and fall forward in the direction of God's will find a divine resource and promise from God, and that is righteousness. So Abraham never wavered. Even though he stumbled, he fell forward back into God and found righteousness. Guys, time and delay can be difficult. (laughs) And that's the understatement of the morning. Time and delay can be difficult, but do not waver. Why? How can I say that? Again, because God, our God, our great God, is the one who breathes life into the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. I'm willing to put my faith there. As Abraham was made righteous, we are made righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, and all of this points with great big neon lights and arrows that are blinking and screaming, it is pointing to Jesus Christ alone. Verses 23 through 25, starting in verse 22, rather. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Paul is connecting the dots here, saying, just as Abraham was credited as righteous for his faith, so you too will be credited as righteous, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is he? He is the one, in verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What an awesome promise that is. And it is rock solid secure because of the promise in verse 17 of who he is. Conclusion this morning, what I want to challenge you with and and leave you with is this thought of what are God's promises to me? 
First and foremost, his promise is for salvation. His invitation is for salvation. As it says right here in the end of of Romans 4, it's available to you. It's credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he sent his Son, so that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's your invitation this morning. Put our faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The second is this. There are promises of who I am in Christ as well. Who am I in Christ? So I say I've put my faith in him, but I still have these moments of who am I or struggle. This is just a small sampling of the promises we find in Scripture of God telling us who we are in him. I am a child of God. I'm redeemed and forgiven of my sins. I'm established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that a good, the good work begun in me will be completed. I am confident and I, I know that I can stand upon the promise that I will find grace and mercy in my time of need. I am confident and can stand secure knowing that I am a minister of reconciliation, that God has not only reconciled me, but I can be a work and a reconciler among other people as well. I'm confident and I can stand secure knowing that I am God's workmanship created for good works. And most importantly, I want you to hear this said that I am 100% complete in Christ. With so many other messages telling you that you need this, you need that, you need shoes that will firm your thighs, I am 100% complete in Christ. That is a promise from God. The one who gives life to the dead and speaks things into existence that do not exist. Juxtapose that, I compare that to my current reality this morning, and, and maybe some of you have walked in here really heavy, thinking... I have got time and delay in the sense of I am struggling with this sin. I am in bondage to this, and will it ever end? How do I find victory in that? We can put our faith in Jesus Christ for that. May have walked in and said, I am, is there any hope for, for this relationship that I'm in? It seems like, kaboom, the TNT has gone off, and, and what do I do? But... God has, has called me into this relationship. What do I do? Through time and delay, would you trust God in that as well? As we leave here this morning, as we walk away, ask yourself these three questions. Will I, like Abraham, will I root my faith? Meaning, where have you set your eyes? Will I root my faith and look only to God to say, it is in him that I trust? Will I engage with my faith? Looking at the obstacles in the eye, the obstacles that say, these are the things that are the hopeless circumstances, these are the things that might even be the, the staggering possibilities, and I'm going to engage my faith because, verse 17, God is who he says he is. And the last is, will I submit in the process? 
even if it takes 25 years, will I say, God, I am absolutely secure because of who you are, and say like Abraham, I am fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to do. Let's pray. God, we come before